All right. Hey, guys, I'm so glad to see you. Uh, I know I say some kind of version of this uh, a lot, but I am honored by the time that you are spending in this room with us tonight. You've been doing a lot of things. There's good sports on TV. I think the Padres game is about to start. That's a good one. Um, but you're spending this, you know, this hour with us, and that's huge to us, and uh, I want you to know that. Um, so I'm going to dive in. Uh, we are in the second week uh, of a study on the book of James. And so if you missed last week, I'm going to repeat just a few things. But we have a book here that's authored by the little brother of Jesus. And so we looked at this last week a little bit. James never leverages his relationship with Jesus. He never even talks about it. He never brings it up. But instead, as the leader, he's the, the pastor of the earliest Christian church in this important city of Jerusalem. He instead identifies himself this way. He says, I'm a lowly servant of the Lord, of this man who happens to be my brother as well. And I always think about this. I think if Jesus had not been legit, who would be better to call him out than his brother, right? Like, I, th- I feel like James would have been the guy to, to say, hey, I have the credibility. I'm going to blow the whistle. This guy's not for real. But instead, what we get is this. We get a, a pastor in James, a, a shepherd that is glad to serve Jesus, to, to give his entire life to that, to struggle through the difficulties of the early church of being persecuted and ultimately to eventually die and be martyred uh, in the service of Jesus. This is what we get from his little brother. So tonight, we're going to get into the first of what I think are, are, are many difficult but strong teachings that James gives us. Um, we're going to look at a lot of Greek words tonight. I didn't realize until my run through today how many Greek words I pulled out of this thing. And some people, I think, find that annoying, but uh, hopefully it'll be okay. So we're going to look at a bunch of those together tonight. Uh, and tonight, to start, because it's the way the letter starts, I want to talk about uh, joy, about the concept of joy. And to ask this, like, what brings you real joy, that, 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 that deep joy in your heart? The list is, some of it's pretty obvious. Like for me, I go, my family most of the time, you know, like my family most of the time brings me great joy. When I see videos, like Josie will show me videos of our kids that she has like on Facebook from a decade ago where they have these little chipmunk voices and they're cute and they're telling funny stories or running around. There's a video where my youngest son swings a baseball bat and falls on his face. We love it. It brings me great joy, right? It it speaks to my heart. Um, Watching sports, watching teams that I love win, especially when they weren't supposed to. It's happened twice in 44 years. I love it. Like, great joy in those moments as well. Uh, Fall mornings. Like, this morning to me was fantastic. Like, I loved it. I turned the air conditioning off in my car today, and that says a lot for me. So I love a morning like that. I love those mornings where you wake up, and one of the first things that you feel and know is that you can feel that God's presence is with you that you know that Jesus is going to give you something today, that no matter what you're facing, whether it's good, bad, or neutral, that it's going to be an okay day because he's with you. That's the kind of joy that can't be described or shown to somebody until they get it. But one of the things that brings me the most joy in life, like pure, like unblemished joy, is seeing people that I love in some of their biggest moments in life, like with God, making big decisions and having big things happen, right? So this summer... Uh, both of my teammates here at Kindred, if you're new to Kindred, there's just three of us on staff here. Um, both of them had these big moments this, this, this summer. And my heart swells when I, when I think about them, when I see them. So if you don't know or you're new, like Jen just referenced Lindsay. Lindsay and her husband, Cole, this summer welcomed their first child. This is Sawyer. Sawyer's much cuter than me, so I'm going to get out of the way so you can see him. Yeah. I always tell people babies don't like me because I look like a giant baby, so I freak them out. But <laughs> that's, that's Sawyer. And then, <laughs> I wish it wasn't true. And then this last weekend, Tommy and Lauren became Mr. and Mrs. Stout. I was told that Tommy also looks better than me, so I should move again, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So these moments, 
this kind of joy, right? It's not something you can force or something that you can produce on your own. Uh, joy itself is this interesting thing to even start to talk about in general, right? And, and maybe many of us have heard sermons on this. Like there's the standard Christian sermon where we get the difference between happiness and joy. So I'm just gonna touch on it for a second. Like happiness as this temporary feeling, and then joy is this thing that's rooted in something more profound, something deeply ingrained inside of us that it surpasses circumstance and it fuels the daily living that each of us does with God. And that's the good stuff, right? That's really good stuff. But it's sometimes also a difficult concept to apply to real life, right? To the real ups and downs that we face, the things that we go through, the way that we have to live. Now, James, he starts this book, the body of what we're gonna get into with this, uh, with this concept at the forefront of his teaching. And, and, and he really to lead with it to me means this. He's setting a foundation for this entire book on this concept of both joy, but also on those trials that we do face that we need joy in. So he starts it this way. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now just read that. It's not, the sentence makes no sense, right? He's setting this up with this literary device called paradox. So last week I mentioned this. I mentioned that, uh, that the, kind of in passing that I mentioned that there's a, a few really compelling things about James and structure. One of those things is that the ideas in this book are written in perfect Koine Greek. And that's, you know, maybe it's not that surprising because you know the, the New Testament's mostly in Greek. But here's the deal. James didn't speak Greek. James didn't write Greek. And so people thought for years, they thought maybe it was a different writer. But really the predominant view is this. Scholars think that James is either a singular sermon that he delivered and that somebody wrote down in perfect Greek, or they think that maybe it's a collection of like the greatest hits and moments out of sermons that James gave uh, to, to, to the, the, the church in Jerusalem that they wrote down and sent off to, if you remember last week in 1-1, to the scattered believers around the world. And it makes perfect sense when we think about it. And even more so when you learn this, that James, as a piece of writing, it follows a, a kind of a typical structure of what a Jewish sermon in the synagogue would have looked like at that time. So what we're looking at here is this, and we're going to look at many elements as they come up, but this moment starts us off, James is using paradox as a literary tool. A paradox is simply this. A paradox is an idea that at first seems to be contradictory in nature, but ends up making sense after thinking about it or studying it. So some of my favorite like catchphrases and quips uh, are kind of uh, in this line of being paradoxes. So I, I just wrote down a few for us tonight. First one's from George Bernard Shaw. It says, youth is wasted on the young, right? Makes no sense at first. Everybody over a certain age, we get it, right? It's kind of in line with the, the idea of I just knew then what I know now, life would have looked differently, right? When my kids are complaining a lot about anything, like I usually end up telling them, if everything's the worst, then nothing's the worst. Does anybody use something similar to that? Uh, and they're always like, okay, whatever. Uh, be quiet, old man, right? But I think I got it from like the Disney Pixar movie, The Incredibles. That's where I think I picked it up from. There, if you know the movie, there's the, the kid, his name's Syndrome, and he's trying to end superheroism by making it possible for anybody to be a superhero. So he says this, to me, a great paradox. He says, if everyone is special, no one is, right? If you remember that movie. Shakespeare was particularly fond of using this literary device called paradox. And I would have included a quote from Shakespeare if I could have found a single one that I understood. And I did not find that quote. And I wish I was lying. Uh, I went to UNC. So James, uh, <laughs> James draws on this, right? This, this idea of paradox, this opportunity to set us up, his original hearers and us as his audience later for a reaction, 
Like that first line should bring out a reaction in us. James isn't just trying to be clever, like maybe a writer would be in our day. He wants his audience to just be taken aback at this idea, maybe to audibly even gasp. And then to make us immediately think, maybe he didn't mean to say what he just said, right? Like how could I possibly take joy, this deep-seated calm and peace from facing negative things in my life? The statement by itself borders on being uh, what's called a fallacy. But the reason it doesn't get there, the reason it stays a paradox, is because this argument holds logic and becomes sound when you read the rest of what he has to say. So James, after this pause, as I imagine he would have from uh, listening to the crowd gasp, he follows it up this way. He says again, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Then he says, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces Perseverance. Perseverance. I want to talk about something that I've been reading this the last six weeks over and over again that I've never noticed before reading James. It's right there in front of me, so maybe you have. But I, I, I never really slowed down enough to understand it or to read it or to consider it. But James, in this, he's saying that trials result in the testing of your faith. Okay? He doesn't say if the trials test your faith. Right? He doesn't qualify it in any way at all. He says, trials will test your faith. He, st- he straight, states straight up that the, the trial that you're going through, they will test our ability to connect with, and here's the first Greek word, it's one of my favorites, we've heard it before, to connect with the peace, the faithfulness of Jesus. Trials get in our way of understanding that Jesus is good. Now listen, this is honestly huge news. And to anyone that's ever felt like in the middle of like one of the worst times of your life, if you've ever felt like you were doing something wrong in that difficult time, or that, that you've ever struggled to connect to God when things get tough and you thought, man, I'm out of bounds here. James is saying this, who can blame you, right? The situation uh, is awful. And, and, and they make you wonder if God is good, then why am I going through this, right? One of the questions everybody asks at some point. I think that the reason that James lays it out this way uh, here in in this book is because for me, studying and knowing that Jesus is the bearer of all faithfulness, that he carries all faithfulness in him, tells me this. It tells me that the trial wasn't from him, but instead it tells me this, that I can actually get more of what I need, his goodness and his faithfulness by staying near to him in these moments. I grow, I get closer to him through difficult things. It's really interesting because the the Greek word in here for trials that he uses, so when he says that trials uh, test our faith, the word is really itself uh, a word that tells us that God is helping us navigate through them. It's telling us that whether we realize it or recognize it, that that really he's already figured out a way for us. Now, us discovering what that way is, is, is kind of the work of the whole thing. We have to discover it by drawing near to the faithfulness of Jesus. It's the same word that's used when the Bible talks about Abraham climbing a mountain for this test, right? With his teenage son in tow, thinking he has to sacrifice him. It's the same word that's used there. It's the same word that in Greek they would use to describe a baby bird that's learning to use its wings. It's testing them out. It's trying to figure out if they can help the bird soar, right? So the way that James describes this process here is this, is perseverance. Here's what pushing through, limping through, crawling through trials does for us we're eventually meant to soar, to take off, to become something new. James says this next. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
So the ability to move through this trial, the, the, the problems, that with the awareness that Jesus is with us and that Jesus is good, despite the circumstance, despite where we are, and we're told it lands us in maturity and completeness in Christ. And complete here is the same word as saying that something is sound, saying that this ground is rock solid, that a coin that's minted is pure gold and it can't be destroyed, that teaching is right on and biblical. It's the same word, for sound. And James is saying, you will take with you through this trial, through this process, an understanding of God, something new that he's taught you that will leave you in this place of maturity, this place of faithfulness from Jesus. My favorite commentary author, he puts it like this. He says, the effect of testing rightly born is strength to bear still more and to conquer in still harder battles. And we know this living life that more difficulty sometimes just feels like it's right around the corner. And that doesn't always happen for us when we get to this place where we're able to understand it and to move through it with grace. But in a scenario where we allow this work to happen, we will see these things happen for us too. Because the next thing that James says is this. He says, if you're still lacking something, so you're, you're trying to move through this, but you can't quite figure out how, he has a solution for that as well. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and we're gonna get to this word wisdom in a second, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Now listen, this verse has appeared before. It's like the push notification for the Bible app to say, check this one out today. It's a good verse. It's a really, it's a, it's a very encouraging verse. I've seen it on, you know, cross stitches and, and grandma's houses and I've seen it on coffee mugs. It's a great verse, but I've misunderstood this verse. Uh, this, this specific application of what James is writing here is something a little bit different. So the word that James uses for wisdom is more than an idea. It's more than just some direction that we get or an idea that helps us. The word that James uses here is the word Sophia. It's like the name. It, it means something so much more than all of that. It means this. It means a divine wisdom that regulates our relationship with God. Something that takes us through process, that helps us understand him, that draws us near to him, divine wisdom. James is saying this, if you aren't able to find a way through a trial and to keep your faith intact, that what you can still do, what you need to do is ask for a divine guidance, to ask God to cut through all of the stuff that you're facing and all the stuff that's dragging behind you in the spirit, to ask the Holy Spirit to indwell your heart, your soul, and your mind, and to become your strength. That's what makes James follow up with this, this next line that kind of sounds tough, but it makes more sense when we start to understand what this divine wisdom does for us. Because James says this, but when you ask for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt because the one that doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now I'm just gonna say, that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Like what James is saying sounds very, very harsh at the first reading of it. But again, though, it has to be couched in this. He's talking specifically about this conceptual wisdom from verse five, that as the regulated relationship with the Holy Spirit guides us, it gives us reason to believe that the beneficial results of it are coming our way, that God has good things for us in any season or situation. We may not see it for a very long time. We may see it immediately, but God has something different than maybe we even started to understand initially. Doubt in this passage is talking specifically about inner conflict. It's talking about the thing in our, in our own brains and our own minds where we have two different choices. 
There's two different ways we can go and we know it, but we can't choose either. And so specifically when he says double-minded, the, the, it's really, the word is really twice sold, S-O-U-L-E-D. It's basically saying you have two different natures in you that are fighting against each other. And what you're getting as a result is a wavering, inconstant, choppy kind of faith. And, and here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that, that, that having difficulties from time to time He's not saying that asking big questions of God. He's not saying that you have a kind of faith that is, is, is going through something. He never says that you can't struggle. It's not the message here. I think the, it gets lost in the English, English translation a little bit at the very end. It's a word called hodos, which is the word for a pathway between fields. This split mind is actually an opportunity that the spirit takes to show us a way. It's the word that's used for highways and roads and streets that connect cities. And here essentially it's saying this, a person who's twice sold and can't choose a way to go, they're frozen in their, in their inability to trust, needs to look for this work of the spirit that gives us a pathway between two things. And James says proceeding in faith is scary and it can lead to long and sometimes even years long spaces of trying to figure out what God's crafting through our trials, our experiences. But following that pathway between the field of where we are and where we want to be is God's way of taking us forward. And really James is doing this. He's trying to teach us early on in this book that a life with Jesus always delivers exactly what a person needs, but seldom always what they want, right? He's about to deliver some more literary device, some more additional paradox. He's going to give us a little bit of irony in here as well, but he's using a very specific illustration in here to help us understand what it looks like to traverse pain in situations. In verse nine, he says this, believers, hold that word, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. All right, so there's more paradox here. The paradox here, it gives us a, a brief pause on this idea that being in humble circumstances, specifically what James is saying is not having very much, whether it's money or stuff, is to be celebrated while being rich, ironically, it should make you humbled by your wealth. Maybe even humiliated, as the translation NIV says, because wealth is an illusion and it quickly dissipates in our lives. Here's what James is going for. The, the word that begins verse nine, believers, is really key to this. He's not talking about the way the world around us works. I, I think about this all the time. We know this is true because if God simply just directed money to good people and bad people were all poor, we'd have a very different world, right? We'd all have vacation homes in this room. Like we have some pretty good people in here, but that's not the way the world works. So what James isn't saying is this. He's not saying, hey, poor people are great and have it all figured out and rich people are terrible and need to be chopped down. That's not what this teaching is saying. He's saying this instead. He's saying believers those who follow Jesus, those who have had their lives uh, paid but with the ransom of Jesus that are in humble circumstances. You're in a good spot. You're starting in a good place because you're in a place to feel and embrace your need for Jesus and Jesus only. It goes right back to a verse in the most famous talk that Jesus gave, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in the same vein, he's saying believers, those who belong to Jesus that are rich are in a position to be humbled because 
if they're only relying on that wealth to take them through life, to figure their stuff out, to give them that pathway between where they are and where they want to be, they're going to be in trouble. For that same sermon Jesus, Jesus gave, he teaches this. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now James knows the Sermon on the Mount. James knows the teachings of Jesus very well. He's going to go on, and we're going to see this in the coming weeks. He's going to quote the Sermon on the Mount about 23 times, maybe more. 23 that I counted. But he's already alluding to his ideas greatly, the teachings of Jesus. If you were here last week, I mentioned that Martin Luther in the 1500s tried to keep this book and Hebrews and Revelation and Jude out of the Bible. But what we're seeing here is because Martin Luther was worried that Jesus wasn't mentioned enough. But what we're seeing here instead is that James is seeing Jesus's ideas represented into very practical, digestible, and actionable steps. James is giving us Jesus for real life. For the believer that's struggling material, materially to, to remember that the true wants and desires of life are found in Jesus alone, nowhere else. And for the wealthy believer to remember that all can be lost in a moment. So if the true wants and desires reside in the same place as they do for the poor, this levels the, the playing field for all believers at the same time. Each of us is after the same thing. We're a single-minded pursuit of this pathway between where we are and where we want to be is pursued through both times easy and times that are difficult. And all of us pointing very directly at one thing. Here's how James continues. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Again, he says this, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And this is really good for a lot of reasons. First, this word blessed here that he starts off with, this, this is the Greek word makar. Now, it's a beautiful word. And if you're a Colorado Avalanche fan, it's a very beautiful word, right? We are truly blessed by Makar himself. This is a great man. But the word means to be supremely blessed in God's ultimate favor. Like this is the best thing that you can have. So it comes to us when we're able to, to really solidify this belief that God's taken us through something and it makes us better. And like I said back in verse two, essentially it's this. It's an allusion uh, to the crown of life this hint that eternal life, that the kingdom of God that's, that's found and promised through Jesus' death and resurrection to the believer is being previewed in the kind of peace that we get, the kind of love that we get, the kind of care that we get from God, even in the midst of the worst that the world has to offer us. God is with us even when it seems like all is lost. James further drives this home by saying this. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Our own sinful nature, our own desire to figure things out on our own, to solve things, to, to have things our own way. These are the genesis of these problems. And there's some implication in the Greek word choice that the concept of temptation, that there's literal satanic enticement that goes with it. It makes sin look attractive. It makes us think that's a better way. So that's in play as well. But the end result is this. God is without blemish. God's making pathways for us to traverse trial and temptation and not delivering it to us out of needless testing or cruel punishment. In fact, we find here in James that the opposite is true. All evil exists outside of God's plan, but all good is generated from only God. 
James says this, he says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James is reminding us very purposefully that the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars is also our creator, our father, that he is birthing us. He picked us on purpose. And so instead of being born through sin, like 13 through 15 said, we're born through the word of truth. And Jesus doesn't change. In Hebrews 13, we tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. But so the gift of God is this. He gives us these good and perfect gifts. And the good and perfect gift is this. He never disappeared. He never left when trials came. He didn't turn from us even as darkness set in over our life for a time. But instead, he gives us the gifts of Jesus, uh, the peace, the righteousness that Jesus upholds. He gives us the gift of Sophia, which is divine wisdom that regulates our relationship with him and helps us move in step with him to live and move and breathe with him. And he continues to give us this generous gift of going before us, of setting this healthy, honest, and generous way to live all these wonderful possibilities and pathways, all the joyful opportunities that await us every single day as we open our eyes to another day in the kingdom of God, another day where he's closer than our skin, another day where he's in every breath that we take, another day where he gives us the opportunity to understand what it looks like to let him take us from where we are to where we want to be. Let's pray. God, I thank you as we start this study on James. Guys, we look at the difficult idea that in every moment, both good and bad in our lives, God, in every trial that we face and everything that we wish would have been different, God, that you weren't turning away, but instead you were right there with us the entire time. You're upholding us with the righteousness of Jesus. You're blessing us with the wisdom, the divine wisdom that only Jesus can give. And that you were continually creating pathways for us to get to the places that we want to be to know that you're a God who never gives up on us. You're a God who doesn't punish us, but instead a God who gives us through Jesus every opportunity to know you, every opportunity to, every opportunity to be blessed by you, every opportunity to, to continue to move towards the kingdom and receive the crown of life that only you can give. So God, I pray as we start this study, as we continue to look at the words that James wrote, that we'd seek a deep understanding of the concepts of what it really looks like to get wisdom from you to have you regulate our relationship with you through this wisdom. And God, that in all the moments that are difficult, all the things that bring us peril and make us ask questions and make us doubt, that you would help us instead to chase after Jesus more, to press into his righteousness and to allow him to be what takes us from here to there. I pray this in his name. Amen.